See if I remember how to do this. Thank you for your prayers and emails and cards and texts while I was sick. I appreciate it. My symptoms were not that uh, severe at all, but uh, I continue to invite you to pray for those who are suffering a lot more than I did. But it's good to be back. This rocking chair is not here so that if I get tired, I can rest. Though you do hear things about people still getting tired, and I do, but uh, that's, that's for something else a bit later. Um, it's always darkest before the dawn. It's always darkest before the dawn. The first appearance of that idea in print, though not exactly in those words, was from a historian, a theologian named Thomas Fuller in 1650. Now, uh, in its most literal sense, it's not true. It is not always darkest before the dawn. It depends on where the moon is in the sky. And I don't know if you were up at a ridiculous hour like I was this morning, but the moon was very bright in the sky right before dawn, so it was not the darkest. However, in the philosophical, in the theological, in the historical, in the metaphorical sense, it can certainly seem that it is always darkest before the dawn as we finish off this difficult year of 2020. It's always darkest before the dawn. The pandemic rages on. Division over the presidential election is still with us. The echoes of injustice and civil unrest around issues of race still ring in our ears, and each day carries with it much anxiety and fear and uncertainty and pain. It's dark, and yet the hope of a new year teases us. The promise of a vaccine flaunts its possibilities. The hope that eventually things will be normal again someday continues to raise its voice. If we can just get to 2021, you may have thought to yourself, things will be better. After all, it's darkest before the dawn. This morning is the first Sunday in the season of Advent in the church year, and the word Advent means coming or arrival. It marks the time of year when we anticipate the birth of Christ at Christmas, as well as the time of year when we remember that one day Christ will return again. And just as there are multiple layers to Isaiah's original prophecy, so there can be multiple layers where you and I can hear and respond to those promises today. So as we walk through Isaiah 64 this morning, I'm going to invite you to listen to the prophet's words on at least three levels. First, what God is saying in the historical context. What God is saying in the historical context. People in exile, people returning from exile. Second, what God is saying concerning the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And third, what God is saying to us today about Christ's return and about Christ who comes to us in every moment of every day in the meantime. The words from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64, speak to a, a time of great darkness in the history of the people of Israel, but also to a time when God promised that the light of dawn was not far off, but it was on its way. God was at work. For us in the northern hemisphere, as I think I probably remind you every year in Advent, uh, the season of Advent begins at a time when our part of the earth is tilted away from the warming rays of the sun, when the days are their darkest and shortest, which seems appropriate for this season. And then likewise, as the season of Advent ends, beginning on December 21st, light begins to return to the world as the earth makes its way around the sun, and we are then in the northern hemisphere tilted back toward brighter and warmer directions, and the days grow longer. Light returns to the world and is symbolic for us of the power of the light of Christ coming into the world. 
This last section in the book of Isaiah, chapters 56 to 66, deals with the people of Judah and their return from exile in Babylon, one of the darkest times in her history. The exile, which began at about uh, 598 or 597 B.C. with a second wave of deportation about 10 years later, the exile was foundational to how the people of God understood themselves in the last few hundred years coming up to uh, the time of Christ. It called to mind for them their earlier exodus from slavery in Egypt, which was even more foundational to Israel's self-understanding. Virtually everything in Israel's story, and you could say in our story, can be understood in light of the exodus, the exodus as the metaphor. The people who returned from exile, in fact, saw their return as a kind of second exodus into the promised land. The people of Jesus' day, a few hundred years later, cried out for another kind of exodus from another kind of captivity within their own land. For while they were back in the promised land, that land was now occupied by the Romans. And so, as is often the case with words of Scripture, Isaiah's prophecy speaks to several contexts. It speaks to ancient Israel awaiting their redemption from exile in Babylon. It speaks a word of hope to the people in the first century of Israel who found themselves in a state of exile within their own land. And it can speak to us about the darkness in our world, our exile, our wandering in the wilderness, our longing for better days. And, we, and while we, like the people of God long ago, may cry out for deliverance from all that is not yet right in the world, from all that still needs to be returned from exile, from all who still need in Exodus. When God's people began to return from exile in Babylon, Babylon to the land of Judah in about 539 BC, things were not as they had been before or as people dreamed they would be once they got back. As one scholar put it, quote, it was a time of high expectations and immense difficulties. There was tension between the returnees and those including foreigners who had been living in the area during their absence. It was a time of high expectations and immense difficulties. For even though they had returned to their promised land, the land had now been made a part of the Persian Empire. I tell you, if it wasn't the Assyrians, it was the Babylonians. If it wasn't the Babylonians, it was the Persians or it was Rome. There was always something going on, always somebody in the way. And this caused many of God's people to feel a bit between two times. They were stuck with one foot in captivity and one foot in the promised restoration. And in that way, their time was similar to ours. We stand in a place of tension as well. We stand in between the first coming of Christ and His return, the second coming. We have a vision of a hopeful future where God is taking things, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. That is, for us who have come to know God in Christ, who, who seek to follow Him and pursue God's purposes in the world, God's Spirit lives within us and gives us a foretaste of the world to come. Even though in our bodies we are not yet fully redeemed. We're not yet there. And this speaks to our good news for this morning. To know Christ is to carry a vision of healing and hope to a hurting world. To know Christ is to carry a vision of healing and hope to a hurting world and to our own hurts, our own woundedness. 
few years ago, someone told me about a, a house up north in Indiana built right on the line between the central time zone and the eastern time zone. The line between the two time zones ran right through the front porch, and on the front porch there was a rocking chair. And so you could sit in that rocking chair and you could rock back and forth between two time zones. It's the cheap person's time travel. Central time, eastern time, central time, eastern time. There is a sense in which we who live in immensely difficult time, be it the people of ancient Israel or us today, we can find ourselves rocking back and forth between two times as well. We can rock back into this present age where all is darkest before the dawn. And because of Christ, we can rock forward prayerfully and get a glimpse of the age to come, the way things will one day be. We can rock back and forth. Does that resonate with you? Back and forth between the way things are and the way things will one day be. And this can give us a vision, if we can just see it, a vision of hope and healing for a hurting world. We have a glimpse of the dawn, but we know we still live in the darkness. We're promised peace on earth one day, but we know that we also have to war against evil now. We believe one day there will be a reordering of all things, but we know we still live in chaos and disorder. This is no doubt how ancient Israel felt, at least some of them, about their predicament. They were back in their own land, but things weren't as they had hoped they would be or as God had promised they would one day be. There was tension, there was frustration, there was pain, there was uncertainty, there was anxiety. And between the words of Isaiah the prophet and the realities in which they lived, they rocked back and forth, back and forth between two times. By the time we get to our passage this weekend in Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecies have done exactly this. If you go back a few chapters, just read through. Start at 56, chapter 56, and read through. You'll see it goes back and forth. They've rocked back and forth from the hope of the future to the reality of the not yet in which the people of Judah still lived. From high expectations to immense difficulties. And they've rocked back and forth in these things several times in the, these last few chapters. And this is a movement, as I said, I think we can identify with today in so many of the not-yet-there elements that we have experienced in 2020. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I can rock back and forth between despair and hope so fast I can create a stiff breeze in the room. These are difficult times. But that vision of hope that we have within us can bring light and healing to a darkened and hurting world. It's why we have prayed and why we continue to pray Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isaiah 64, 1 through 9 is part of a larger section that begins chapter 63, verse 7, and goes through chapter 64, verse 12. It's a prayer. This prayer begins with elements of praise to God for his goodness and provision in the past. So, for example, the first verse of the prayer reads in chapter 63, verse 7, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for Israel according to his compassion and many kindnesses. Chapter 64 then moves into a prayer of lament and a pleading for God to act. Verses 1 and 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, 
as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Isaiah cries out for God to act, for God to do something, for God to fix things, for God to rescue them from their enemies. Ultimately, however, it is a prayer for the coming of Christ who will be called by the Hebrew word Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Christ, God will indeed come down and deal with the enemies of the people of God, but he will do away with them as enemies by making them into friends, which it turns out is God's preferred way of getting rid of his enemies, turning them into friends. As we read on in Isaiah 64, however, it becomes clear even the people of God, even the people of God can sometimes be the enemies of God. Verse 4, Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our our sins sweep us away. God's people ended up in exile because of their sin against God, the ways in which they too had become, in a sense, enemies of God, rebelling against God. The themes of the season of Advent are all about preparing the way of the Lord, preparing our lives and our hearts to receive Him when He comes. God, Isaiah says, is a God who acts on behalf of those who wait for Him. Those who gladly do right. Those who remember His ways. In what ways do you and I need to pull back from the darkness of 2020 and prepare our hearts to receive Christ anew? How can we use this season to rock forward from our immense difficulties and into the high expectation and promises of the kingdom of God? In Isaiah, in, in uh, 64, 7, Isaiah laments how bad things have gotten among God's people. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Are we calling on God's name? Are, are we, are you, am I reaching out to take hold of God in our uncertainty and anxiety? And while those of us who have put our trust in Christ for his forgiveness need not worry that God might give us over to our sins or that God will hide his face from us, the truth is our sins do matter. They can obscure the face of God from us. They can make it difficult for us to see God or to call out to Him. And so the question we have to ask is, are there sins from which you and I need to repent? Are there other gods that we have called out to or bowed down to instead of the one true God? Twice in the larger prayer, there are true moments of of grace that knit these two chapters in Isaiah together, remind us of That wherever we are in our guilt and our sin, there is a greater reality. There is a reality that is greater than all of it. And so in chapter 63, verse 16, after lamenting that God has apparently withheld his tenderness and his compassion from his people because of their sin, Isaiah prays, but you are our Father. 
Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledges you, Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. See the same thing later in 64 verse 8. Yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. You are our father. God is our father. God is the one who has made us for himself. God is the one who has redeemed us. Even our sin and rebellion and idolatry simply do not have the last word. And I wonder how transformative it might be for us to take that simple phrase, even as we pray prayers of lament, even as we cry out for God to come down and fix things here and now, if we just laced it with the phrase, but you, God, you are our Father. You are our Father. Help us never to forget that. Help us never to forget that you are sovereign, that you are able to work in all circumstances. Remind us that we are the work of your hands and that you will never give up on us. Remind us that the vision you have instilled in us has the power to heal and transform our dark and hurting world and to heal and transform us. Now, the real passion of the prayer comes in chapter 64, verse 1, of course, where Isaiah prays, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It's a plea for God's justice. It's a plea for God's judgment against our enemies and for his compassion upon us. This is, this is central to the prayer, and it acts as a hinge between the way God has acted in the past and our crying out for God to act in the present and the future. We rock back and forth again, right? Because we know how God has acted in the past, we can pray for God to act in the future. Because we have a glimpse of where God is taking all things, we can pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This first week in the season of Advent is a reminder that we have been given a glimpse of where God is taking all things. We don't know every detail of it, but we've been given a glimpse but we're not there yet. And our role, like that of Judah, is to praise God, is to remind ourselves of God's goodness and compassion in the past, to remind ourselves that He is our Father, to cry out for the rescue we in the world needs, to be, merc- to be mindful of our sins, to, be, to wait on God in, in prayer and in trust, to do right, to act justly, and to trust that God our potter molds and shapes us as the clay that we are, and to offer the hope and vision we carry within us to the hurting world around us. For the people of Judah, Isaiah 64 was a prayer that God would deliver them. For us, it is a reminder that God has already delivered us in the coming of Christ at Christmas. The heavens have been torn apart, and God has come down to us in the incarnation, a word that means enfleshment. God in the flesh, in the birth of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the coming of his spirit upon us and within us. It is a promise that we can trust that God will eventually act in a final and full way in the return of Christ. And it is a promise that he acts in this way every single day by coming to us by the power and presence of his spirit within us and in one another as sisters 
and brothers in Christ. God comes to us. Christ comes to us in one another. So we're being warned that even though a vaccine is apparently on the way, praise God, the next few months may be very dark indeed. And while most of the civil unrest that we have experienced around issues of race this summer seems to have subsided, though that may say more about the media than the issue, the issue is still relevant. The need for conversation, for healing, and justice is still very real. And let's set aside the political polarization in the nation as a whole for just a moment and note that the division in our own county is quite stark. The difference between those who voted for one candidate and those who voted for the other is less than 500 votes in Tippecanoe County. We live in a time characterized by darkness, division, and death. This is a cheery way to begin Christmas season, isn't it? Such is 2020. And all of this is to say nothing of our personal darkness and loss or our challenges as a congregation. Friends, we need to hear and pray Isaiah's prayer. For every moment when you and I may rock back into the present age and its immense difficulties, we must prayerfully and thoughtfully learn to rock forward into the age to come in the vision of God. We need it, and our world needs it. So this morning we lit the first candle in our Advent wreath, the candle of hope. It is a reminder of the promises of the coming Messiah that encouraged the people of God thousands of years ago. It is a reminder that we live in a similar time in which we await Christ's return and in which Christ's presence can come to us moment by moment in the here and now as well. Earlier we sang the classic Advent hymn, hymn, O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill the world with heaven's peace. How appropriate those words are even today. In the song we're going to sing in closing, there is a verse that speaks to this same need and reality today. Father, we're on our knees. With every heartbeat, we bring you this offering. Lord, come and fill this place. Father, we're crying out. Spirit, we need you now. Glorious love surrounds us. Lord, come and fill this place. In response to the promises of God that we who are in Christ have been given a, and we carry a vision of hope and healing to a hurting world and our own hurt, I invite you to make use of the time over the next four weeks of this season of Advent to make way for Christ to come to you in new and fresh ways. Each week we have resources for you to continue learning and spiritual practices around the worship themes in our Bible app live event. This week, as we enter into this season of Advent, I put a few options for you to enjoy and meditate on in particular. There are some links to some music in Advent that I personally find very helpful and love for you to take advantage of. There's two other things, though, that are in the Bible app that I want to make sure I draw your attention to. Uh, first, on Sunday, December 6th, next Sunday, you can purchase tickets to a live stream concert of Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb. Kim and I have gone to see this live several times, but in recent years we just couldn't do it, and now especially. It's 15 bucks for a household, and you can stream it live, and it's become for us a discipline of Advent every year. It's beautiful. So you can do that. There's a link to how to get to it in the Bible app, or you can just Google Behold the Lamb. 
Second, I encourage you to sign up for our Advent texting prompts for the season simply by texting the word at AdventECC to the number 81010 on your phone. The instructions are also in your bulletin and the Bible app. There are a couple of other resources there, as I said, but I wanted to mention those two specifically. And now let us respond to the reality that in Christ we are a people who live in two worlds and we have within us that we carry with us a vision of hope and healing to a hurting world. So I invite you to join me in just a moment, in a moment of silence, as we invite God's Spirit to speak to us in whatever way we need to be spoken to. As we rock back and forth between the two ages. Let us ask God to speak to us of sins that we might repent. Let us pray for God to enable us to faithfully, thoughtfully, and prayerfully live into the age to come and manage the tension between darkness and light, between injustice of the world and the justice of the world to come, between waiting on God and living into our promised future. Would you join with me in just a moment of silence as we allow the Spirit of God to move? Come, Holy Spirit.